the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining, and if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. This morning, our colleague John Wells, in his final interview with Cool Science Radio, speaks with George Musser about his new book titled putting ourselves back in the equation, why physicists are studying human consciousness and AI to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Then Lynn and I talk with Eric Siegel. He's the author of the new book, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment and How Machine Learning Can Help Business Improve Efficiency and Operations. You're listening to Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. Our next guest is science journalist George Musser, who has just written, Putting Ourselves Back in the Equation, Why Physicists Are Studying Human Consciousness and AI to Unravel the Mysteries of the Universe. Musser looks at how physicists are working with neuroscientists, artificial intelligence experts, and more to try to explain consciousness and how they're actively working with AI researchers to understand more about the neural systems that help AI actually work. George, welcome back to, or welcome to Cool Science Radio. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here and I hope it'll be coming back in the future. This is such a great program that you guys have. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, maybe we can start with this. Um, tell us why you wrote this book and how you structured the book. So, you know, this is really an interesting moment in history of, well, I, I should say every moment feels like the interesting moment, but honestly, I do think that what makes this moment special in the history of science and history of intellectual life is a convergence of different areas. And you've just listed a whole bunch of them. There's AI, there's computer science, cognitive science, generally psychology, neuroscience, and physics. So... Which of these doesn't look like the other? You can play that kind of game and you can wonder yeah. what is the physics? What does it have to do with anything? And for a while it was assumed that actually physics didn't have much role to play in understanding consciousness. And conversely, that understanding of the, the brain, the mind, consciousness, cognition, perception didn't have anything to do with physics, that those were really right. separate domains. But I think we've seen, and I've seen in, in just in the course of my own career in the past few years, and this is why I've, undertook the book, uh, was it just a convergence of these areas. You would hear, I go to a lot of physics meetings and people would in the evenings or sometimes even after a talk say, you know, maybe we need to put the observer into the picture a little bit. Maybe our own minds, habits of thought, ways we view the world are coloring our, our perception of physical reality. And that needs to be incorporated into the, into the theory. So it goes kind of both ways. Yeah. The physics can help the neuroscience, the AI, but more surprisingly, in a way, the AI, the neuroscience, can back into the physics. There's a lot of questions in physics that seem to require an understanding of the human or sure. more generally the sentient observer. Yeah. One of the common themes that I've observed over the last 10 years of talking to many people on Cool Science Radio is that historically knowledge was held in these silos. and. And the silos were within a particular discipline. And now uh, they're, they're sharing, in, you know, everybody's sharing this knowledge in that discipline. And also the cross-discipline sharing that's going on is very, very exciting. And it's opened up, I think, a lot for science. 
Absolutely. And this is really was almost kind of the meta question that I was really getting at with this with this book and really beyond the book, just in my own rest of my mm-hmm. career, is the de-siloing of, of academic research. There's a reason for siloing in a way. There's, you know, you have, do have to, in order to conduct research, have to have a, a firm foundation in a given specialty. You have to know where you as a researcher can can push, and that does require a certain depth of knowledge. At the same time, the most interesting questions, the questions that really animate me, the capital B, capital Q, big questions are interfacial. They're at the intersections of these different areas. So yes, it's so exciting to see these people from different areas. I've see, actually seen papers that have glossaries in them, sort of the physics view, the neuroscience view, and they have like a little translation table, like a Google Translate between the two areas because the jargon is different. But seeing people wrestle with these questions at the inter section of their domains is just so cool. And these are very, very hard questions. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure if if the process and the processes that we have to, you know, work with particle physics, physics for an example, or astrophysics, if, if those same models can be used to try to understand consciousness. I mean, we may have to reinvent how we think about stuff, huh? Exactly. So I think this is for the physicists, one of the main impetuses of this, that their field historically often progresses through the accumulation of paradoxes. So there are just certain points in, in the development that are certain observations they make, theories they develop that just seem to lead to a dead end. And then to get out of that, they have to create new ways of, of thinking about the world, of theorizing. And I think we're at one of those moments with our understanding of consciousness. It goes by various names, the hard problem of consciousness, the explanatory gap. There's different ways of framing it, but our basic upshot is that our current scientific process framework doesn't seem up to understand, to explaining or describing even, let alone explaining our own subjective experience. Yeah, so so let's talk about David Chalmers and 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 the role that he has played in all of this. What is he known for? What and and all of that. So David Chalmers is a very well known philosopher. He's currently at New York University. He's bounced around. He was in Australia. He was in Arizona, in fact, mm-hmm. for a while. And in 1996, I guess it was at the first of these annual. The Science of Consciousness (TSC) conferences that are actually held uh, in Tucson, and then they go to some overseas location or another location in, in the world, back sure. to Tucson, and they kind of yeah. ping pong back and forth. The conference, apparently, I'm, I wasn't there, unfortunately, um, but I'm told it kind of wasn't going that well, and it was overly technical. People weren't really connecting, and then David Chalmers basically turns the whole thing around. He gets up and he gives us talk, it wasn't probably more than half an hour, articulating what he called the hard and this easy problems of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the easy problems, which are actually extremely hard in any kind of absolute sense, are understanding the kind of workings of the, the mind. How does our visual experience, how is that constructed from, from input into our retinas, that sort of thing. And he said, there's this hard problem, which Again, easy actually really meant hard. Hard actually really meant impossible. Hard problem, which is that our, by the very nature of subjective experience, our scientific method, experimentally, theoretically, mathematically, anything really, doesn't seem able to gain traction on it. 
And this is, to a physicist, this is like catnip. This is saying, hey, physics, the framework you have developed since Newton, or really before, but take it back to Newton, certainly, doesn't get at this aspect of the physical universe. There seems to be an impossibility. And physicists love that kind of thing. They like being told what's impossible to get out of a black hole, or it's impossible to go faster than light, that sort of thing, impossible to build a perpetual motion machine. So when you tell the word impossible to them, they're really like, they perk up, and they go, well, maybe actually uh, we have to make it possible. There has to be a way to make it possible. So that probably means new modes of thinking. Yeah, and I, you know, I think about general relativity, the large and the very fall apart, far apart. And I think about quantum, the very small and the very close together. Mm -hmm. And those those two bodies of work absolutely make sense, but not together until we came up with these mathematical equations for string theory. And you need to somehow unify this thing. And I mean, it's hard enough to come up with a single theory, but now to to bring consciousness in, this, uh -huh. this is going to be interesting, isn't it? It's going to be interesting. This is why it's so it's just tremendous. A lot. It's exciting for a lot of reasons, by the way. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the many reasons it's exciting for is that we're almost guaranteed to have a scientific revolution, a revolutionary idea at least, to come out of this kind of, of work. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that humans, perhaps in conjunction with AI and maybe others, other species, have a way to answer these questions. I'm not in the Mysterian school of thought that says, well, probably we'll never understand it. I think we will, and I think when we do, it's just gonna be a big revelation in the way that relativity theory, quantum theory, theory of evolution, all these things all really opened our eyes to whole new phenomena we had never really suspected. Yeah, and it's interesting, a lot of people think that quantum is outside of us, but we're quantum beings. Oh yeah. Uh, we, it underpins our, our description of matter, uh, without it, we wouldn't have time dilation for navigation systems, lasers, transistors, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. But as you point out in the book, and and, and I love this uh, this part, where you said, put three physicists in a room and you're going to get four or five different ideas of what quantum is. And for something that means so much to the way the world runs, we kind of don't really agree on a lot of stuff. And I, you know, I was using the whole put them in a room thing, not just because that's a fun kind of metaphor to use, but because I, it literally happens. It literally, there are rooms on this earth yeah. into which multiple physicists have gone. I've been in them and they are like, we can't, we can't agree. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating for them, but it's also the lack of an ability to agree after, by the way, it's been going on almost a century now is indicative of this being a very deep problem. And again, the physicist loves that kind of thing. Yeah, They're frustrated, but they also love it uh -huh. because it means that when they do get the answer, when they do clutch onto it, something deep will have been learned. It won't just be spinning their wheels. It actually will mean something in the way that, again, relativity, quantum, and multiple other scientific revolutions have. If you are just joining us on Cool Science Radio, thanks for joining us. We are speaking with George Musser, who has written putting ourselves back in the equation why physicists are studying human consciousness and AI to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Um, he is a award-winning journalist, a contributing editor to Scientific American, uh, done a number of things, and he is the author of Spooky Action at a Distance, which uh, which uh, sounds fascinating. I'm going to take a look at that book. But um, um, 
You impeccably, uh, impeccably researched this book. What most surprised you as you went around the world talking to people about this? Oh, wow. You know, it's, it's one of these, life works on many levels. So, you know, we have the grand goals of our, of our life, and then we have kind of the day in, day out part of it. And mm-hmm. in a way, it was the day in, day out part of this book that surprised me the, the most. It's hard to rank, but let's just take that for now. The sure. little insights we get, even mm-hmm. if the big theories are wrong, and probably they're all wrong, we're, we're still grappling, right? Then yeah. this is what makes science fun is that there's always a progression toward uh, better and better. But it was the little insights that surprised me. So one, for example, is neural networks are trained by error. And neural networks include not just ChatGPT and it and its ilk, but the neural networks in our own heads. We're trained by error. Now, the thing is, we learned in school, error is bad. Yeah. You want to get the A plus, you want to get the 100 on a test, whatever. But you need the error. You cannot learn without making a mistake. Right. And actually, there was a very interesting study um, that trained neural networks. And they found if they could make the neural networks get 85% right and 15% wrong, that was actually kind of a sweet spot. They want to get a lot right because otherwise, you know, what's the point? Yeah. But you need a little bit wrong. So in other words, you students, in a way, teachers should be aiming at 85% at right. If they're always getting 100, that means they're probably not challenging themselves. If they're getting less than 85, that's probably too hard. There's that's a right. sweet spot. And yeah. I kept coming up with insights like this as I researched the book, that our own, another insight is our own, perception, our own field of experience is constructed by our brain. We're not passive creatures that take in like cameras, take in data, do some manipulations and produce kind of a screen or so to speak in our heads. We are actively generating our own experience. So when you catch a ball, for example, you have to project forward where the ball will be so that you can catch it. And you literally see a little bit into the future in that process. You literally mm-hmm. see where the ball will be. And that's how you can put out your mitt and catch that, that yeah. ball. So this, these little insights just pop up all the time whenever you talk about cognitive science or, or AI, for example. Yeah. And uh, the physical sciences, you know, they could be wrong as well. I mean, the James Webb huh. Space Telescope we were hoping that thing would go uh, to its Lagrange point and that that it would uh, force us to ask questions we haven't even thought of yet. And man, it's a little bit over a year and it's it's sort of taken the big bang theory and uh, put that on the table for further discussion. It's just yeah, I mean, fascinating. It is fascinating. And I, throughout my whole career, I've seen cosmology go through many kerfuffles and trying to um, understand how the Hubble constant, for example, can be different in different regions locally or mm-hmm. uh, the furthest reaches of the universe. And again, for the physicists, they're happy when this happens, by the way. They love it when there is some kind of paradox because in resolving the paradox, because we don't really think nature itself is fundamentally paradoxical. There is a logic to it. So the, the paradox is in us. So when we can resolve it, we will have found something more. But uh, interestingly, I've read this article where there were a number of physicists when the James Webb uh, images uh, came through that were kind of reluctant to talk about it because they had hung their hats on the Big Bang Theory for all of these years. And and they didn't necessarily want to move into an area that that uh, after believing in Big Bang for so many years. So but, but we're all human. So we so we have. Uh, 
you know, we, we do that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, scientists are human and that's actually good, I think, mm -hmm. because humans, you know, we were caught up in cognitive biases and we make mistakes and that's actually, though it's frustrating though it is and how it can hinder progress also is a source of, of new thinking. Yeah. So we're finding these conundra in our, in our understanding of cosmology, yeah. um, multiple ones. And I think it will make sense in the end. I think those will resolve. And I actually do think there was a big bang. So I think we'll ultimately find that that was the case, but you do have to resolve these, these puzzles. Yeah. George, what are some of the theories that, uh, that have come up now about consciousness? Does it, does it come from matter? Does it, uh, you know, what, what are the theories? And also like, you know, I, I read about uh, panpsychism a while ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, is, is that something which people are looking at or is that a little too far out? No, absolutely. Panpsychism is totally on the table. And actually Chalmers himself, his preferred resolution of the hard problem that he articulated, although Chalmers is careful, he does survey a range of ideas and doesn't settle firmly on one, but he tends toward basically a panpsychist attitude that consciousness is innate to matter. It's somehow a fundamental property of the universe, sort of like there's mass, there's charge, like electric charge, and consciousness. He would put that in that level, or maybe underneath mass and charge and consciousness, there's some common, not material is not the right word, but common process, common structure that creates both the physical and the, and the psychic realm. For me so, personally, that uh, to think that consciousness could be ubiquitous across the entire universe, it kind of it, it, it kind of feels good to hear that. It is it is pretty pretty amazing. It's clean. It is clean. It does have its problems, as everything does, and it 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 has its own hard problem, because if you take consciousness as somehow fundamental, then you need to reconstruct the material world as well. You need to explain the interaction between the, the mind and, and the body. So none, and this is what makes it fun, none of the proposals out there is entirely free of difficulty. Yeah. In addition to panpsychism, there are other, you might put things on a spectrum, well, that's simplifying, but basically spectrum, you've got panpsychism, dualism at, at one side, which attributes some kind of fundamental role to the mind. At the other side, you might have a kind of a hard physicalist view that it's really all matter and somehow mind emerges from that. And then you've got things kind of more physicalist, but more in the middle too, that say, yes, it's ultimately material, but you do need some ing ingredient or some recipe, shall we say, for how to extract or, or explain the emergence of the mind from the material. So a lot of the theories I talk about in the book, I really focus on two because those are the most rooted in physics that I'm neglecting the others because of, I want to concentrate on the role for the connection right. to physics, but the, right. the others are still there. Just acknowledge that. But two, I focus on our integrated information theory, which ascribes consciousness to a kind of harmony or a, a whole is greater than the sum of its parts principle mm -hmm. and predictive processing, predictive coding, which ascribes consciousness to this uh, kind of, I mentioned a little bit earlier, a predictive process the brain undergoes in order to predict the world. And consciousness comes out from, or is kind of a byproduct of that predictive apparatus. And they're panpsychists in the, or 
almost panpsychists in the way that they ascribe consciousness to anything that possesses the same properties. So it's not just the property of the brain, the human brain, the, you know, the mammal brain, perhaps birds. I don't know where the cutoff would be biologically, something like that. But any, any system, including AI systems, if they have the right structure, according to those theories, will be conscious in the same way that we are. So David Chalmers, again, going back to him, he applied a range of these theories, integrated information theory, predictive coding, his own views on panpsychism to chat GPT and concluded it's probably not conscious. It doesn't really have any of the ingredients that those theories take to be necessary. The next generation, though, if we go to chat GPT 5 or 6, might indeed have those properties. And then we'll be having to face as a society the interactions we have with a conscious machine. And you wrote an article in May of 2023, how AI knows things no one told it. And, and I'm wondering when the chat GBTs have these hallucinations and God only knows where they get some of the stuff they uh -huh. come out with. Can you talk about your article a little bit and and mm -hmm. uh, uh, what a hallucination is and, and why it's happening? So the, the question is, uh, and I talk about it in the book as well. So the article in the book are kind of on a con on, you know continuum mm -hmm. there. There's a black box problem in in AI. These models, so called these neural networks, for example, are so ginormous. You know, I don't know what ChatGPT is like a trillion or trillion and a half parameters. You know, independent variables in that are adjusted. So there's just a mammoth challenge of understanding how such a complicated system can lead to the behaviors, the ability to, you know, respond to queries. And in the process of understanding the mechanisms, scientists have a variety of techniques that actually draw a lot from neuroscience. They can create where essentially strokes within the system. Okay. They can lesion out part, ablate is the term, part of a, a neural network and see if it does that deprive it of some kind of capability. They can insert probes into it as electrical probe will be inserted into the brain. They do that with the neural network in, in a sense. So I talked about in the article, a lot of these experiments that have been done to understand to what degree is a large language model such as GPT understanding. It's a fraught term, but is it understanding in the way that humans do? For the most part, no, it's not. It's knowledge is, is fragile and kind of context dependent, depending on the, the prompt you give it. But there are cases in which it does seem to achieve an understanding in the sense of it creates within it, within the network that can be found using these techniques, models of the world. For instance, if it, uh, it can play chess badly, but it can play, it can play a fellow, it can play different games. And actually within the large language model, if it's trained in the right way, there will be a little teeny chess board or a little teeny Othello board within the system like we would have in our brain if we're playing chess, we kind of imagine it in our, in our heads. So those are the kinds of black box opening techniques that I try to discuss in the article. And the book discusses it as well, namely physics can be used to open a black box because the world is a black box too in the way that AIs are. Like the gas in the, in the, the air in the room, how does it work? It's composed of gazillions of molecules and they have collective properties such as temperature, pressure, density, and so forth. How does that arise? The physicists have developed techniques for connecting the micro to the kind of more macro description and those techniques can be applied to networks as well. Reading your book and reading your articles, it's obvious you're a very curious person. <laughs> so 
We only have a couple minutes left, but what one question do you have about consciousness or about any subject you want at all? What one question do you have that has not been answered yet? Oh my God. Well, I mean, consciousness, the stuff I talk about in the book, if I choose one, that's really hard. Well, you can take a couple. Take take two or three. Great. Here's one I did not discuss in the book, but actually I've been thinking about a lot my whole career is actually why I got into science is the origin of life on Earth. Yeah. How did that arise? It seems to have happened very early on based on the geological evidence. Um, but how? And how did it bootstrap up to the incredible diversity of the natural world that, that we see today? So there's a there's a big one. Is there life on Mars, other you know, Europa, other places in the solar system and, and beyond? I, I'm so curious about consciousness and whether it will require a scientific revolution or what kind of, it will require, I should say, it definitely will, but what kind of revolution will require? Do we need to add it to our fundamental inventory of the universe along mass and charge? Do we need a new principle? Do we need to revisit our reductionist view of how we break things into parts? Maybe we need to go beyond that. So it feels like we should be close to it, but it just just eludes our our grasp a little bit. And then there's dark matter, dark energy. Yeah. Oh, here's, if I need to ask, answer one, and you did ask me for one, right? Um, What about the Fermi paradox? Why don't we see other civilizations in the universe yeah i haven't they visited earth or at least to our knowledge have visited earth mm-hmm. i think in a way that's almost the most to me one of the most perplexing things of all because my background's in, in astrophysics in astronomy planetary science really and um, i would have expected that the universe would be filled with life beyond yes. earth and that we should see it but we haven't seen it yeah and, uh, you, you know, I thought about this once. If you're walking through the woods and you um, meet a squirrel, you don't sit down and try to teach it algebra. And, uh-huh. you know, they may be here, but they're just indifferent to us because we're like a bunch of cows walking around. It, yes, I think that's definitely one of the many explanations of the Fermi paradox. And, that, and by the way, it's a fascinating insight. I mean, I mean, I live with, live with my dog now. He's seven years old, and I still don't understand him completely. He yeah. is perplexed by, by me. And that's a tight relationship across the species, and yet so perplexing. And how do we expect to go even further away from our experience? It's We've got our work cut out for us, definitely. George Musser has written a fascinating book, Putting Ourselves Back in the Equation, Why Physicists Are Studying Human Consciousness and AI to Unravel the Mysteries of the Universe. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this. People have been speaking and talking and looking at consciousness from Socrates and probably before Mm. that. And there's always been some research, but there hasn't, you know, my sense is there hasn't been much going on. Why has it taken so long to grab such an important part of our human existence and and really, really study it? Yeah, it's hard. It's a difficult problem. Mm -hmm. And science works by, in in a stair-step process. It takes what it can do. And the reason we've actually been able to make as much progress as we have in, in science is actually by bracketing certain problems. So yeah. consciousness is one of those bracketed problems. But I think central kind of lesson from my book is we need to debracket it. It's it's time. We're ready. Right. And we need right. to because we're at that point in our development. We want to thank you so much for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. And we wish you continued success with your book. And that was 
John Wells' final interview with Cool Science Radio. We will miss him, but life goes on, right? It does. It freed up space for new hosts, I guess. <laughs> That's like right. Me. Like Katie Mullally. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll be talking with Eric Siegel about mastering the rare art of machine learning de- deployment. How about that when we return? Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. When you think of AI in its current context, many of us envision fantastical images, either copied or created on their own. Or we think of chat GPT and the papers being written and answers given that aren't always correct. But when you look to the origins of AI, AKA machine learning, you see that the true purpose of machine learning is to issue actionable predictions. And for the business world, these predictions can drive operational decisions that can impact business operations in real time in the real world. Here to tell us about machine learning and how businesses can harness its power is Eric Siegel, author of the new book, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. Eric, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Katie and Lynn. It's great to be here. First question, I know a lot of us have this, including myself. What is the difference between machine learning and AI? Well, to many people, they're the same thing. AI is a little bit of a fancier or maybe highfalutin word. There's also kind of a problem. AI tends to overpromise because it uses the word intelligence, which is a pretty ambitious goal when we're talking about a machine. Intelligence is something hard to define, but it's something very particularly human. And you were right in your intro to say, hey, look, what most people today are think when they think of AI, they're thinking of generative AI, and that's what you get from uh, chatbots like ChatGPT. Those are called large language models and generating images. They're working very quickly on, on video and music. There's a lot, of, a lot of that. It's generative in that it generates new content items, but the, uh, you know, the longstanding enterprise uses, the business uses are very much predictive. So you could call it predictive AI to, to, to distinguish it from generative, call it predictive analytics, enterprise machine learning projects. But either way, you're using machine learning, which is learning from data to predict, right? That's the value in a nutshell that you get from automated learning. There's a reason we call it machine learning because what's discovered from the data, historical data, data is experience from which to learn. You know, a business knows which customers canceled, which ones made a purchase, responded to marketing, committed an act of fraud, turned out to be a good or a bad debtor, a car, you know, credit card holder and this kind of thing, which satellite ended up running out of battery, which ended up being a good place to drill for oil, et cetera, et cetera. All the large scale operational decisions we drive are going to be optimized by prediction. Prediction is the holy grail for improving these decisions. And because we've already been making these decisions, maybe not in the best way, we've been running businesses, we've collected this. That's what the big data movement was all about, getting big excitement about the value because it's a recording of things that have happened in the past. It's, a, it's It encodes the collective experience of an organization organization from which it's possible to learn to predict. Predictions are the most actionable thing you can get from data. That's what you want. And it applies both for predictive and generative. In the case of generative, you're literally predicting what should the next word be? Okay, technically it's token, but it's on that level of detail. I've written these two sentences, two and a half sentences so far. What should the next word be? And it just keeps iterating on that to write the next word. Same thing with generating images. This pixel of this image that the system is in the process of generating how should I tweak it right now in the next step? Should I make it brighter, darker, change the color? And it does that for each pixel. 
again, based literally on predictions, whereas the sort of established longer term decades running established business use cases are more about predicting for humans who's going to click buy, lie or die, commit an act of fraud, any kind of outcome or behavior for which there may be value for the organization to predict. And it's very much applies to clinical health care as well. But it doesn't have to just be people. It's at that level of, of organizational detail, right? It could be a, a, a corporate client, as I mentioned, a satellite running out of battery. So your background, and actually you've writ literally written the book and you offer courses on machine learning. How long has machine learning, as we understand it, as we see it, been around? Well, uh, there's not there's not an absolute difference between machine learning and linear regression and bus businesses were using linear regression in the sixties to better target marketing and to make and establish credit risk. Now, typically linear regression or a linear model, which is just a weighted sum is typically too simple, but you don't have to make it much more mathematically sophisticated to all of a sudden be really useful. There's something called log linear regression, which is still just a weighted sum. It's just got a little bit of a, a sort of nonlinear mathematical twist to it, but you're still weighting all the factors much the same as with a weighted sum, a linear model. And then when you build those kinds of things up and use that type of simple model as a building block, it very quickly becomes a neural network. Other methods are decision trees, which is just a bunch of if-then rules. So these concepts have been around for decades, and it's just slowly become more and more commonplace to use them for all different kinds of uh, organizational operations. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Eric Siegel. He is the author of the previous book called Predictive Analytics, and now a new book just out, The AI Playbook. And this is all about deployment of AI, or, you know, I wish we could just call it machine learning because machine learning makes so much more sense than AI. It's not so nebulous. It's not so fancy. We hope that our machines learn, that get to a point of learning. In, in the world that you've been involved with for a really long time now, I mean, from what I can tell, you started consulting on this before 2010, and most of us had never heard of the term machine learning until about 2015. I've been actually been an independent consultant since 2003 and been in the field for 10 years, more than 10 years longer than that. And yeah, you know, I, I feel the same way. I wish we could just call it machine learning, you know, say, say what you mean and mean what you say. I, I I'm, I'm the, the word AI is amorphous and tends to overpromise. On the other hand, you know, arose by any other name. So, you know, we call it a smartphone and without necessarily having any grandiose expectations that it's going to come alive, right? It's a smartphone. It seems <laughs> It's cool. It does things more than a flip phone. But is it smart? Well, nobody's saying that. But well, the way people generally use the word AI usually on some level involves this promise that we're moving towards uh, human level capabilities. And let's, let's call that story what it is, artificial humans. So I wonder if people feel like they have more control over, you know, if I'm thinking machine learning and I think more about input, and there's something about artificial intelligence that to me sounds like output. You know, we give it a few little instructions and it comes out with this immensely creative thing that's going to solve all of my, you know, my previous inability to, to create something. And so I guess my question there is, you know, are people starting to use it and deploy it in the right way instead of just this, this, item that we marvel at. 
Well, yeah. I mean, there's a million great track record, established track record of, of successful deployments. There's also a lot of failed ones where they don't quite get, get there and Denver takes off. Um, that's sort of the that's sort of the problem that my new book is is addressing. It's just as far as the organizational practice, and you have to understand that. Look, you have to plan for the deployment. It's not just a number crunching thing. It's a business improvement project, which means changing operations, and you know, change is hard. But I think that the use cases are there. People have been involved in this in those established use cases, the predictive ones for targeting, marketing, fraud detection, and, and all basically any and all the existing large-scale operations you can think of uh, have been there for decades. It's on the other hand, although that's an older area, it's not old school. It's still hot. It's maybe hotter at, for the moment. There, there's no competition. It's not a zero-sum game. But, but really, predictive applications like those, or we have the established track record. That's where most of the resources and investments, money are, the proven ROI. And yet, just a tip of the iceberg because there's so much still untapped opportunity. You know, we've got lead. You've got you've got big tech and a lot of leaders really making hay of this. And then you've got your sort of unique enterprise leaders at some companies. And then you've got a lot of other companies trying to catch up, and maybe doing some great number crunching. But then it doesn't quite take off. They don't actually get it integrated and launched. In your book, one of the first examples you give is of UPS really utilizing machine learning to help their businesses. Give us and our listeners an overview of how UPS really changed their operations thanks to machine learning. Yeah, so they predict tomorrow's deliveries in order to optimize them. To be specific, they augment the existing known packages in the shipping center with those that may or may not be coming with overnight flights and such. There's a lot of sources of uncertainty. Uh, this is the antidote to uncertainty is prediction. So now they have a bunch of supposed, but not fully presumed, but potential other deliveries in addition to the known ones. And now they have a bigger, more complete view of what deliveries need to happen tomorrow out of that shipping center. And they use that to thereby make a more effective and efficient allocation of packages to all the shipping trucks, making all those decisions and then actually loading the trucks overnight so they're ready for on-time departures the next morning. Because they do that, it really, really improves their delivery of 16 million packages a day, you know, in combination with also prescribing driving directions, which at a certain point was new there. The win UPS gets every year is 185 million fewer miles of driving, $350 million savings. 8 million gallons of fuel saved and 185,000 metric tons of emissions. Those are astounding numbers for a business to use something that seems almost simple like machine learning. We're in Park City, Utah, as we were talking before we started. Ski resort, hotels, very tourist based. Could our ski resorts theoretically use something machine learning to help with their operations, whether it's traffic flow, you know, where, where to put the skiers, what lifts to open, what runs to open. Is there a way for ski resorts, just out of theory, to make this machine learning idea in businesses more practical for our little town? Could there yeah. be a use? I mean, there certainly could be. It may be a little bit more on the sort of forecasting level. In general, most businesses uh, of a certain size can certainly use it for marketing. And in general, what you're talking about is if there's a large enough operation, it doesn't matter how big the business is, it's how big is the operation and how much data has been collected so far. So if you're if you're just doing once a year direct mail for let's say a holiday catalog selling candies, but your prospect list has a million on it and that 
obviously a ski resort could easily have a size like that. You can track how people respond, and that's the experience from last year's campaign to, to learn from and better and more effectively. And when you target predictively, in comparison to not targeting at all, I mean, you can really be improving the return of investment on these types of initiatives by a you know a factor of three or five, that kind of thing. It's a dramatic difference. In terms of the flow of skiers, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, there's logistics. The UPS example is definitely logistics, and this is sort of a, but that's usually about sort of maximizing the flow. You're trying to get everybody from point A to point B. Whereas the definition, I love downhill skiing. I grew up, but it's a non-competitive sport. And I've never been that into competitive sports, but that the whole point is the freedom. They're going to go wherever they want. They're going to have to figure out where there might be a longer, a longer lift line, you know, and, and there, you know, you can just provide that information. You don't need any particular math to do it. Because everyone just loves to talk about supply chain. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk about supply chain. You know, a, a big issue was that perhaps companies who regularly employed and even effectively machine learning they the machine in air quotes hadn't yet learned about a pandemic so i'm wondering now you know it seems like like people are still using supply chain as an excuse for xyz not mm. getting there and not arriving on time or not performing on time and i'm wondering to what degree there has been correction and learning real learning such that were we to encounter, you know, 10 years from now, another pandemic, the supply chain wouldn't be disrupted because it would have learned. Well, that, that's a great question. But by definition, a pandemic is essentially an anomalous event, kind of a black swan type of thing. So the numbers games that we get to play with prediction that comes from machine learning on that per individual, per human, per corporate client, per, per automobile that might need its tires replaced or, or they do that per wheel of a train, you know, on that level of detail, the advantage is that, you know, in general, we don't have clairvoyance. We don't have a magic crystal ball. We can't expect computers to have clairvoyance either, but what we can get, the value is to predict better than guessing. And that's where you, turns out that you're playing the numbers games that businesses play more effectively. You're tipping the odds in your favor as a business. And that's where the numbers work out, even without highly confident or highly precise predictions, just significantly better than guessing by certain measures. We enjoy the benefit of knowing that any one time we predict incorrectly isn't a deal killer. Over many cases, it pays off, it pans out. So that that's what we enjoy. But it's the trends overall are what they are, you know. 30% of customers are going to respond to this offer. We don't know which 30%, but now we can put odds on it. But if that 30% is going to change dramatically to 40 or 20%, that's sort of a macroscopic thing. It's what I would use the word forecasting. Is the mm -hmm. economy going to go up or down? What's the weather going to be a year from now? Uh, who's going to win the presidential election? When's the next AI winter? <laughs> you know, all of these occurrences are really, really hard to predict. Now, the good news is that when they, when they do happen, we benefit from data-driven decisions. The world changes with these types of singular events or catastrophic events or unexpected events. And then after it's changed very quickly, a new track record, a new amount of data is, is accrued. And that's the benefit when organizations are driving decisions with decision with data is that now they've going to, you know, after a few weeks or a couple months, they're going to have a whole new data set. And now they can create an updated predictive model based on the new reality in which we live. Yes. 
Okay, so the AI playbook, your tagline is mastering the rare art of machine learning deployment. So if it is a rare art indeed, it must mean that companies, both large and small, are not deploying uh, AI in a way that's beneficial to them. And so this is what you want to help companies do, correct? And you break it into sort of these six buckets. Can you talk about those? Yeah, sure. Um, so the the book is presenting this playbook, paradigm, discipline, a six-step practice. And most uh, business professionals aren't even aware that really machine learning projects require a very particular specialized business practice, way of running these projects so that they're successful. And that's what I'm breaking down in the, in the book. Indeed, most new enterprise machine learning projects fail to deploy. And I've been involved in a couple of rounds of industry research recently to this end. And, there's, and I'm not the only one. There's been, you know, IBM recently reported on industry research showing that the average returns on AI projects are effectively zero on average in the sense of being lower than the cost of capital. So they're just not there. You're not getting enough wins to actually make it pay off on, on average. Now there's, there's plenty of glowing successes. UPS is only one of many stories, but the track record really stands to improve. And it's basically about an organizational shift, not just better technology, but more about changing the way we, we, frame these projects to be business oriented, planning in reverse from the beginning, how it's meant to deploy, what needs to change, and establishing a really deep collaboration between the quants, the data scientists, and the business stakeholders. They both need to play a role and they have to get on the same page at the same time. And here's the, here's the big pitch that I wanna make to the world learn about this stuff. It's a kind of data literacy. You must ramp up on a semi-technical understanding of what it means to deploy machine learning, to integrate those predictions into operations in order to participate. And you need to participate because more than anything else, machine learning projects need the business side stakeholders. But once they've ramped up and it's really simple, all you have to learn are basically three things that define each project. What's predicted, how well and what's done about it. So that, that's what makes it concrete. That's the use case is what are you predicting? What's done about it? Who's, which transaction is most likely fraudulent? Let's block the transaction. Who's going to buy? Let's market to them. Whatever it is, it's that kind of magic pair. And then the quant quantification of how good it is, the metrics, how well does it predict and how much returns are you going to get? So you got to get into a real certain amount of detail. It's not like it's not like auto mechanic school, it's driver's ed. It's for everybody. I don't know where the spark plugs are in my car, but I to drive a car, I know how to maneuver it and momentum friction and the rules of the road and expectations, mutual expectations of drivers. You need that level of expertise analogously to run machine learning projects so that they succeed. So Eric, you talk about the model, building a model. Is that a like an in-house computer, so the model is built specifically for that company. It's got firewalls around it. It's just for them. Or is this something that they bring in this these data machines from somewhere else? No, usually the, when you're applying machine learning, you do it internally at a company, and you're in that way very much creating a customized proprietary predictive model that is tuned to the very particular prediction goal. Cause you're not usually just predicting, Hey, which customer is going to cancel. You have to be really specific. And that's part of the detail you have to iron out who that's already been a customer for four months is going to decrease their spending by 80% in the next three months and not 
increase their spending the same amount in a different channel because that doesn't count as cancel. You know, all work out those details of exactly what you're predicting. So for that particular prediction goal and for your particular customer base and, and list of prospects and your particular product and your marketing materials, how do people respond and how do you capture those patterns? Now you've captured a predictive model, the, the, the discovery of those patterns from the data that's particular to your company and the world that you and your colleagues live in, and it's going to be the most valuable for you. So that's sort of what it means to be data-driven is that you're being very much specialized. There are exceptions like fraud detection for payment cards. There's one main universal model used across banks uh, that FICO made. But those are kind of the rare, and the FICO score too, that's credit, but those are kind of the rarity. This is about making your own internal cuts. Use this technology internally to make the best model for your particular situation. That's good, because it seems like once a business runs these models, there's a lot of proprietary information that they would want to keep protected. Have any businesses had their data stolen from these models and used for other businesses or purposes? You know, it's so funny. I've never, that's such a great question because, you know, we hear about data leaks all the time, you know, and we, and we all as consumers get emails from all different companies to say, uh, sorry, you got to tell you something, you know, your information, your social security number is on a list that a hacker got. So we hear about data leaks, but I can't think of any examples that I became familiar with of them getting the model. I'm sure that that's coming. I mean, if they get the model, especially unbeknownst to the company, then they can reverse engineer attacks against the model to, to, to trick it, right? The worst case scenario there would be, you know, trick all the uh, self-driving cars so they don't recognize a stop sign. So the, these types of attacks and, and malicious behavior come a lot easier if you do get access to what was meant to be a protected model. So it's definitely a concern, but I, don't, I haven't been hearing about, at least I haven't, it hasn't been on my radar yet, but I, I'm sure it's coming. Eric, before we let you go, I just want, I've been curious because you've been working in this realm for so long, you must <laughs> have a lot of frustration at, you know, a few minutes ago, you said, this is something that everyone needs to learn. It's like driver's education. What do you find most frustrating in how, you know, we as humans either employ the use of AI machine learning or not? What do I find frustrating? That's kind of a personal question. That's about my feelings. Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you my feelings. Okay. I find I find the AI hype frustrating. The overpromise that we're creating artificial humans is, is implicit in there in a lot. That's what OpenAI and all these companies that say they're pursuing AGI. Mark Zuckerberg just came out as an AGI pursuer. I think it's a fairy tale, a myth, or a dystopian fantasy. Um, I think it that isn't that isn't to undercut how incredible it is. I've never thought I'd see things like ChatGPT in my lifetime. But you have to hold that in your head at the same time as the um, sort of realizing, look, how much of the human mind can we really reverse engineer? Just even if we analyze all the text in the world, that text is human behavior. It's what we've written. But how much can we really fully reverse engineer about full scale capabilities? It's easy to take for granted what we are capable of as humans, broadly speaking. But as far as the kind of need for bare bones ramp up the the, the um, data literacy I'm mentioning, what's predicted, how well, what's done about it, what it means to act on probabilities. You know, I'm not frustrated about that. I'm excited. I think it's a great opportunity. It's a lot more accessible and interesting than high school algebra. And we learned that. There's no reason we shouldn't be learning this. It's so pertinent and relevant. And it's the best and most interesting kind of science, learning from data to predict. We can't expect anything other than probabilities because we don't have definite 
crystal ball predictions, but those the fact that we put it into probabilities, a number between zero and 100, that's only a good thing because then we can sort of tune things accordingly. So I, it's, it's a fan, fantastic, fascinating area as far as I'm concerned. And anyone who hasn't learned it yet, don't worry, it's not boring, Get like dig into it. So our guest today has been Eric Siegel, author of the new book, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Development. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, both of you.